Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Minister for Justice Helen McEntee announces a zero-tolerance strategy towards domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. We have reached a point in our society where I think so many people have said enough is enough. Um, you know, the type of abuse that happens, be it sexual or domestic abuse behind closed doors, we can't continue to say, well, that's nothing to do with us. The army to be put on standby for Dublin Airport security as mandatory mask wearing could be set to return. Would you welcome the return to wearing those masks? And later, the government approves legislation to compel schools to provide special education classes more quickly. Do get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, just to some news that broke this evening, Ghislaine Maxwell has been sentenced to 20 years in jail for sex trafficking offences by a court in New York. The six-year-old was convicted of five charges in December for her role in trafficking of young girls so they could be abused by her partner, Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein was, of course, charged in 2019 but took his life in prison. Today, the judge said Maxwell was not punished in place of Epstein, but for her part, in the crimes. Maxwell apologised to the victims today, saying she hoped her conviction would bring them closure. One of the survivors gave her reaction after the sentence was handed down. Maxwell and Epstein were predators who were able to use that power and privilege to harm countless individuals. And for far too long, the institutions that should be protecting the public were instead protecting them. And I still hope that we find out more about how that was allowed to occur. Her statement felt like a very hollow apology to me. It, she did not take responsibility for the crimes that she committed, and it felt like once more her trying to do something to benefit her uh, and not at all about the harm that she had caused. Now, a zero-tolerance approach is being taken by Minister for Justice Helen McEntee to tackle domestic, gender and sexual-based violence in what the government has described as its most ambitious plan to date. A package of over 350 million has been allocated to the strategy, which is the third such plan since 2010. Well, a little earlier, I sat down with Minister McEntee and I began by asking her why, over everything she has on her desk, she prioritised this issue. Why have I prioritised this? Um, I mean, I'm in a position that I am in now to be able to actually make a difference um, and to bring about change. And I think we have reached a point in our society where I think so many people have said enough is enough. Um, you know, the type of abuse that happens, be it sexual or domestic abuse behind closed doors, we can't continue to say, well, that's nothing to do with us. 
we have to intervene, we have to start making sure that we have a different approach to it. Uh, when we look at younger people, when we look at the types of relationships that younger people have. We know that abusive relationships are happening at a much younger age as well. The introduction of technology, the access to pornography, all of these things, I look at it and I just think we need to do something now before it starts getting even worse. There's been two previous strategies here. So this is the third strategy addressing this issue since 2010. Did those strategies achieve everything that they set out to achieve? And is this any different? We are taking this issue seriously. We are tackling the issue of domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. So all of the groundwork that has been laid by the previous two strategies, my colleague Francis Fitzgerald and many others, that has gotten us to where we are now. But there's just so much more that we need to do. We're now at a place where new laws are really important, showing that we're tough on perpetrators on these type of crimes. But it is that societal change. It is that attitude change that needs to happen. And for the first time, there is a real focus here on that prevention. So it's education in schools. It's raising awareness in general. It's hearing the voice of the victim in everything that we do. And it's actually for the first time putting the child and the young person front and centre as victims themselves, which I think in the past maybe we, we haven't done or we just haven't, uh, haven't focused on. Children have been the invisible victim to date. Haven't they, Minister? Well, they will be heard now. And it's not to say that they've been ignored. They haven't. Um, but this plan sets out quite a number of actions. So everything from making sure that the voice of the child is heard when we deliver services, when we are delivering new refuge accommodation, when we are delivering new types of training, be it for teachers, be it for medical, uh, medical practitioners, anybody that a victim will come into contact with, that there is a child focus. It's looking at ways in which we can understand how this impacts a child, whether they're a victim of domestic violence, sexual violence, whether they're a witness in a household where, where uh, you know, dad is being abusive to mum or vice versa. Um, but it's also making sure in a court setting that their voice is heard. You mentioned the Istanbul Convention there, and under that convention, uh, we are meant to have a refuge place for every 50,000 people in the population. So based on our population, we should have around 500 places. But in this strategy, your aim is to double the spaces we currently have from 141 to 282. Why not make 500 the target? Why not try and achieve that? What I've said very clearly is we want to reach the top end of that Istanbul target. Um, and what we're doing now is really laying a lot of the foundation to put a much more efficient, a much more effective structure in place where there is consistency in delivery of service. Um, that hasn't happened to date, albeit we have wonderful people working in Tuzla who have been um, working to develop the services. The 141 that we have at the moment, doubling of that to 282, that would be the, the most ambitious um, delivery of refuge accommodation that we've seen, and that will then build on and develop into a higher number. So I'm being realistic, I'm being honest in saying that that is what I feel we can achieve, making sure that we do it right, making sure that we have all of the structures in place. Uh, that won't include the number of safe houses that are being developed, so we will have 14 new safe houses developed this year, we will have more next year, we will have more the year after that. But at the end of five years, Minister, despite the ambition within this strategy, there will still be victims out there who are unable to access a refuge place, potentially hundreds of them. 
what I've said and, and I suppose the ambition that I would have and those after me in this department is that this strategy is the medium term objective, that we double our numbers and then to reach that 400 plus target we are talking about the next strategy. So the short term is obviously the next year or two setting up the agency, the medium term is reaching that doubling figure and then our 400 plus is in the lifetime of the next strategy. Noreen Blackwell, who I'm sure you're familiar with, um today and many others I think involved uh, in this area um, sort of applauded this strategy and the ambition within it uh, but she said you know let nobody forget this is not a silver bullet. It's not and what is different about this strategy is that it is for the first time bringing everyone together so all of our government departments uh, who have committed to all of these actions in the plan we've worked very closely with our state agencies and we've actually co-designed it with so much of the sector, uh, Nolan and many others included. So we have tried to make sure that it's not just one focus, it's not just about prevention and education, it's not just about putting in place the services, it's not just about the justice sector, it's not just about the structures that underpin all of this, it's all of it together with society. So I mean it is a huge undertaking. Um, the goal being zero tolerance, this is a journey. It, it's a path we all have to go on. You can't achieve it overnight. You can't achieve it by one single action or policy. But I think if you're ambitious enough, you can certainly, uh, you can certainly make progress. And really, that's, that's what I want to do here. There are nine counties, uh, Minister, who still don't have a refuge space. Uh, do we have a timeline for when those refuges are going to be put in place? Yes, the intention is that every county will have a refuge by the end. So we have identified before, like, is there a timeline for that? Before the end of this strategy, so we have 24 uh, new units coming on stream next year in early 2024. That's across Navan, Dundalk and Wexford. We then have 12 priority locations that have been identified uh, and then three remaining ones that are, so you have 98 between 24 and 25 and then you have 19 uh, in the last year. So when you add all of that up, when you look at all of the areas, it means that every single county will be covered. Some will take a little bit longer, but it goes back to the fact that we do need to put an appropriate structure in place, one that will work, one that will deliver a service that has, sets a, a standard and a bar right across the board. Uh, and in the meantime, obviously, make sure that all of the other service providers, the 24-hour helplines, uh, that all of those are funded, that they are supported to make sure that victims know that, that there is help out there and, and that they can access that help. Thank you, Minister. Thank you. Well, now joining me to discuss this further is Amy Granger from the Childhood Domestic Violence Association, the CEO of Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, Nolene Blackwell, Fine Gael TD, Emer Higgins and Labour Party TD, Jed Nash. You're all very welcome uh, to the programme. Nolene, I'm going to start with you. You know, I quoted you there. You said this you isn't, you know, a silver bullet in this strategy, but is there anything within it that you feel is a game changer in this area? So I, I, I don't think so. I think I, maybe I was talking about legislation when I was saying that wouldn't be the silver bullet because what I think the minister says there is so important. There are 12 dozen actions, 12, 12, 144, 144 different actions in this. And I see them like a team all going in step along the way. And they create, they'll create the momentum Whereas if I pick out one or someone else here picks out another one and that's prioritised, it won't work as well as if you can bring them all forward. I mean, one of the things that struck me today was how 
far behind we are still. You asked the question about the previous two strategies. What was different about this one? I think what was dif- what's different about this one is there's measurement. There's a budget with it. There's a timeline with it. And with any luck, we should see accountability with it as well. We should be able to work out if it's happening. There is and going to be a statutory agency, albeit not in y- 2024. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's, I'm not sure that's the main point. But for instance, the Taoiseach launched it today. So there's a reporting up. It's a pity there isn't an external body like an Oireachtas committee or something that's looking into it as well. But sure, we might manage that over time as well. But it seems to me that... We are very, very far behind. When you think that we have 150, less than 150 refuge spaces, and as you said, 500, that's 350 family units, possibly, who are desperately in need of external shelter and can't get it. And the same is true in my own area of sexual violence, where where access to uh, services is just so limited, um, so few people can access them in a timely way. The court system is so slow in holding people to account that we're coming from way, way back here, which is why I say it's kind of like, it's like the sweeping. We have to shift everything forward together. And I think this strategy has capacity to push us forward. If it's implemented. If it's implemented. And we won't, even if it is, we won't end up in a great place. We'll end up in a better place than we're in right now. But this, five years ago, was a hidden problem. Sexual violence you couldn't talk about. Well, maybe you could here, but very few places you could talk about it or or what was needed for it. Childhood sexual abuse simply wasn't dealt with in as... Uh, in the way it is now, where people are saying, not putting up with it anymore. So we are making progress. But my God, it's painfully slow. And the cost to the people who aren't, who aren't helped by it is we, we just have no idea as a society how harmful it is. I'm just wondering what's in this strategy that will sort of change the mindset of a victim who's sitting at home tonight, who for whatever reason finds it really difficult to come forward and to come out of the shadows of domestic violence, whether they're male or female. What in this strategy will change their minds? Yeah, so I I, I think uh, what what I think is the sign of hope for everybody, and different people will see it differently, but survivors of domestic violence, of sexual violence, have very strong ideas about what's needed to change. And there's lots of ingredients in the strategy. But I think what would give me most comfort if I was talking to them is a coordinated approach. So the fact that somebody has thought through what's needed at the start and will say, you, the guards, need to do that. You, the rape crisis centre, needs to do this. You, society, has to stop turning your face away. You know, Is that so not that, this agency, this statutory agency? No, the statutory agency, I think, will coordinate everything that needs to be done. But A, we don't have it. And they say 18 months now... I, I have me do, but, but, but the minister is very capable of pushing things along. So, okay. uh, so even at that, it's not, go, it's, not, it's not a silver bullet either. All it can do is ask the Department of Defence to do that, okay. the Department of Tourism to do this, and the Department of Justice to do something else. But then there has to be a way that they are, they are held, their noses are held to that grindstone. Um, 
Amy, I'm conscious there that Nolene talks about the cost, the yeah. cost, the impact on lives Absolutely. if we don't get grips with yeah. this issue. And you and your mum are both survivors yeah. of um, domestic violence. So you know the cost yeah. if we don't get this right. Yeah, like it's it's so hard because as Nolene said, the cost of it all, it's not so simple as saying to someone, you know, there is absolutely amazing services out there, but it costs money. If, say, for instance, you need to go for a divorce after you get your safety order in the courts, you're looking at legal aid, you're looking at solicitor's fees. If you're going for a private solicitor, if it's not that, it's the legal aid board. You know, it's so costly that people who are going through domestic violence have never asked for this. So therefore, you know, to order to break the cycle, they shouldn't have to go through the courts to obtain a barring order, a safety order, a protection order. They didn't ask for this. Domestic, sexual and gender-based violence is not asked for this, especially in this society. And I have to agree, I think we're years behind when it comes to the court services, when it comes to children. I think we're far years behind. But, you know, I have to say, with the courts, it's not just simply get a protection order and get your legal aid. When you go walk into a court and you walk into that dolphin house, it's so triggered for people. You walk in, you have no idea what you're doing, you know? The guards will give you the best advice they can, but it's so triggering for them because they're going, how do I apply for this? Do I have to see my abuser again? Whereas myself, my mom, we obviously have our organisation. We're so lucky to be able to help people that we have a wraparound service to guide them to court, to go with them. But I definitely think more needs to be done. Um, this strategy does recognise children Absolutely, yeah. as victims in their own right yeah. for the first time. Is that important and why? Personally, for me, that's very important. I'm a survivor of childhood domestic violence and growing up, I felt very lost. I felt... I was so glad to be able to get counselling and therapy, but that was with the support of my mum who broke the cycle and actually left. You know, there's people out there who actually can't leave, you know, and I think children are forgotten about sometimes. I definitely think children need to be taught at a very young age to break the cycle because if not, it's going to go on and on and on for years and we're still going to be the society that says, you know, oh, just brush under the carpet because we are a society as a country that still do that. I'm really conscious when I was reading your um, story earlier today, Amy, that... Uh, you, you, you and your mum got out 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but your mum had tried to leave on multiple she occasions. Had. And on one occasion, she did go to a refuge. She did. Didn't she? What happened? She went to a refuge and they, they basically apologised and said, we're full. And that was back in maybe the late 90s. Yeah. You know, so compared to now, and yes. And what, what did your mum do? She went back home to her abuser. But how the violence was condoned, it wasn't just physical violence. And this is something that we talk about hugely. You know, it's not just physical violence. It's not just verbal financial. They're the, the, the small things, you know, that go on in a relationship or, you know, whereas the bigger things have to be looked at. What are the things about gambling, drugs, alcohol? They're the things that start off. That's how it started off for me was my abuser was a huge gambler. You know, so they're the small minority things and they're, I think, the things that have to be looked at. Emer, uh, I'm just listening to uh, what Annie's saying there, particularly, I suppose, about, you know, the refuge spaces. And Nolene, you brought it up too. Uh, is this a real missed opportunity, you know, given the fact that the minister said this is the most ambitious this government has ever been or any government has ever been when it comes to tackling uh, domestic violence? And yet we are still going to be so short of the number of refuge places that we need. I think, Kira, today is a really significant day for Ireland. Um, and we've seen that in terms of the response to the announcement today. We have Women's Aid, we've Safe Ireland, we've all of the NGOs, Nolene's, Aineys, all of the NGOs who worked, who have, have ownership of this strategy too, you know, who worked to put it together and um, welcoming it. It's a huge and significant step. 
No, we're not fully there. We accept that. But it's a really important step to get there. This is backed up by an awful lot of money and an awful lot of action plans and responsibilities doled out to make sure that genuine progress is made. And that's absolutely what Minister Helen McEntee is fully committed to doing. And I want to just commend her. I think she's really led from the front on this. What we have before us is a real victim-centred um, regime now. And it's one that puts children at the heart of it too. And that's that's just so important. I mean, what you did also say, I suppose, was that the, you know, mm. the punishment aspect of this, the prosecution aspect of this is one of the four pillars of this strategy. And there has been this, you know, increase in the uh, sentence that would be um, made available for somebody who's committed a, um, a friend guilty of assault causing harm from five to 10 years. Do you think that is going to act as a deterrent? I think I think these things are really important because it's about public awareness, it's about cultural change, and yes, it is about deterrent. Um, Minister Helen McEntee's also gotten approval for new standalone offences in terms of choking, in terms of stalking. All of these things are part of that culture, of the part of the fact that Ireland needs to stand up and say this isn't acceptable. If anybody goes down this route, there are going to be really serious repercussions. And that's what that, um, I suppose, focus on the prosecution side of things is about. But it's also about prevention. It's also about protection. It's also about policy changes. And that's why bringing together all of the organisations, the state organisations, but also the non-governmental organisations who work on a day-to-day -day basis with families to support them, bringing them together to make sure that we have the right wraparound supports, the right pathway out of this for people. Is there enough in this, um, Jed Nash, for the men out there? who find themselves victims of uh, domestic violence. I know it is predominantly women, but there are men watching this evening who are also uh, victims. Uh, absolutely, and it's, it's an issue that I've dealt with. Um, I advocate quite frequently um, for men who are victims of um, family-based violence or gender-based or sexual violence. Uh, and it is an issue in our society, there's no doubt about it. And there to is be fair, no refuge for men in this country. Am I right? That's, the, right. that's right, that's my, my understanding. And to be fair to, to the Minister, um, she understands that and she understands that this is an issue that involves everybody right across society. She's not specifically saying that this is an exclusive issue in terms of um, you know, women uh, being the victims of uh, gender-based violence. It is an issue for men as well. I think the great thing about this strategy is its coherence. Um, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Annie's mum, mom who made that incredibly brave decision a number of years ago mm -hmm. to actually acknowledge that she had a problem. Uh, she took the courage in her own hands to go to a refuge and say, I need assistance, I need help, and to be turned away. That must have broken the heart as well of the people who worked in that particular mm -hmm. refuge. So now we have a commitment to develop a refuge in every county, but what you need as well is additional places in the existing refuges across the country that do really incredible work. And what we need as well is a national conversation. It might sound cliched, but it's really important about the cultural change that we need to see in this society about what's uh, acceptable and what isn't. And when we talk about zero tolerance, that shouldn't necessarily be just from a kind of judicial or sentencing-based mm -hmm. um, uh, perspective. It should be about what we're prepared to tolerate as a society in terms of the everyday casual misogyny that goes on. Young men in particular need to educate themselves and the system society needs to equip them with the tools to understand what's wrong, you know, talk about healthy sexual relationships and what comprises consent, for example. I mean, that's a, that's a critical yeah. conversation that we need to have. So, so men are at the, the, the centre of this in many, many ways. And we have a deeply unequal society. We need to have that conversation about those, you know, imbalances in our society. Yeah, and Amy, um, the Minister did mention there that, her, that she is concerned about the age at which people are coming forward yeah. and yeah. saying that they're finding themselves uh, in a relationship where there is a violence or coercive control mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, a mental, physical, uh, emotional abuse. And you say that you're coming across that 
all of the time and that it is getting younger and younger. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think, you know, social media, we all say, has a huge aspect to do with that. And I think as a, as a young person, like I'm 24, so I mean, as a young person, when I was 15 or 16, you know, I was still going through the, you know, impact and emotional aspect of domestic violence. But young kids are understanding that what physical violence is, they're hitting their partner, they're understanding what type of, you know, if it's alcohol, if they're on nights out, they're understanding young, younger and younger. And they're experiencing they're, it. Yeah, because they're going through it and it scares me because at 14 or 15, it's very, very young. And that's why I think education is a huge thing. Um, and I just, I have to condone Helen McEntee because I think she's probably one of the most proactive ministers that has brought us out, especially for young people and for children. I mean. Often, often for, for, for children experiencing um, family-based violence, school is often the only place where they feel safe and secure. And sometimes you know, teachers' SNAs and support staff in schools aren't properly equipped. Yeah. They want to do their best, but they find that they're not yeah. properly equipped they and don't have the resources and the language yeah. Yeah. that they need to be able to actually... Yeah. They're not comfortable doing it. So I think that's a conversation that we need to have as well, equipping yeah. our schools probably. Yeah. And hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There are various um, systems that are um, used in terms of best practice elsewhere that we need to adopt here. Well, you'll be familiar with those okay. systems and that's really, really important yeah. because there's two things that really, I think, stay with a child uh, during the, you know, the period of their lives. If they experience poverty, uh, as a child, if they experience family-based violence, and we can break that cycle, you know, if the resources are there, and if we're prepared to have those yeah, conversations it's, it's, and equip it's our It's in schools. the strategy as well. And actually, the Minister for Education was at the launch today as well, as well as the Minister for Higher Education. And um, she's... I mean, there has definitely been an issue around um, uh, giving all of our schools... Some schools are doing very well, yeah. the Minister yeah. for Education said, some are not. Uh, so, so raising that for everyone. And it's also in the strategy about that cultural change as well, that calling out of it. We're doing our programmes on consent as well, and we can see how different it is when people understand that well as well. All but right. it's in the strategy as well. So, it, you know, we're optimistic. There are an awful lot to be done. OK, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Amy Granger and to Nolene Blackwell for coming in. Uh, Emer and Jed will be staying with us. And after the break, the army to be put on standby for Dublin Airport security. What difference could it make? 
Stay with us. Now, there have been two very different plans discussed by the government today, and if they come into being, they could play a big role in our upcoming summer. The first involves Dublin Airport. The government has agreed to a request by the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, to have the army on standby to help with security potentially over the summer. It comes after calamitous scenes like these at the end of last month. Also, the government says some early work is underway on legislation that could lead to the return of mandatory mask wearing in certain circumstances. The move is being seen as precautionary, with no immediate plans to introduce it in the dial before summer recess. Well, here's what the Justice Minister had to say. So this is simply uh, a mechanism that we're going to put in place that would allow a number of members of the Defence Forces to be trained up uh, in security screening. It would not be public facing, so it would be there to help a lending hand should they need it. But obviously we hope we won't get to that point. And really this is only being proposed for the summer months where we know it's going to be extremely busy and is busy at the moment. Emer Higgins and Jed Nash are still here and we're also joined by Bauer Media's political correspondent Sean Defoe. Sean, give us a bit more detail here. What's involved in this contingency plan? Uh, but the one for the Mayor Board involves basically dra drafting in the army if it is going to be needed over the next couple of months. Now, they're not automatically going to go in. If they are, it's because something has gone wrong as it has gone wrong a few times now in the past. And they wouldn't be in public-facing roles, as Helen McEntee said there, so they're not going to be checking your bag on security or have army officers checking whether or not your little Ziploc bag actually has the right size of toothpaste in it. That's not what's going to happen. Instead, they're looking at them for roles that they have at, say, entrances to the airport or patrolling the perimeter or things like that that would free up other staff to then come in and do those security and check-in uh, roles. Um, what period of time are they looking at and how many airports or army staff do they have on standby? So it's going to start on the 6th of July and run basically through August. So you're looking at about a six-week period of the busiest time of the year and probably up to about 100 army staff are going to effectively be on standby for this. They have to do a bit, little bit of training uh, to get them ready for the roles and just to comply with airport security and all that kind of thing. But they'll probably still be stationed at the two barracks somewhere in Dublin and if there is a big issue with the airport then drafted in, although you imagine if there is a huge air issue and people are suddenly missing their flights... Uh, that just drafting them in with an hour or two hours notice probably isn't going to make a huge amount of difference at that stage. Uh, I'm just wondering because DEA did say a, a few weeks ago on this programme when we asked them about, you know, whether or not the army would be brought in, they said, we don't need the army. You know, we have our own army of staff here. What's changed? Well, well, what's changed, they obviously they don't feel that they have enough people because of the COVID surge that we're seeing. And that's putting a lot of people out of action. So where they said a couple of weeks ago, we're grand, we're recruiting, I think it's about 50 people a week, going to have an extra 600 by the end of the summer. But now they're also facing a lot of people being out, a lot of people being out at short notice. And that's what's led them uh, to do this precautionary measure. They say they hope they won't need it. And I think everyone kind of hopes that they won't need it and everything will be fine. <coughs> but that's why they put it in place. Uh, what do you think of this, uh, Jed Nash? I mean, we did, all the politicians said the DAA needed to have a contingency plan in place. You couldn't have uh, scenes like we saw a couple of months ago uh, repeated across the summer as the airport got uh, busier. So do you welcome this? Well, look, the, the, the sound you're hearing now is the sound of chicken chickens coming home to roost. Um, we know that during the height of the pandemic, even though um, the Dublin Airport Authority were drawing down millions upon millions of euros in state supports through the wage subsidy scheme, they were still letting many, many hundreds of staff go through what they termed a voluntary a redundancy scheme. So I remember the phrase that the CEO used, it was really vomit-inducing. 
right sizing, right sizing the airport. They weren't aware when you know flights were going to come back to normal. They thought it was going to be 2024, 2025. This is all on DAA management. And let's be frank about this. I mean, I, I heard today from the director of communications when he was saying, oh, this is a case of one state agency helping another. It's not, you know, the ESB helping out another commercial semi-state agency. This is calling in the army, the, the military force in our country. I know, that but we also just happens. have to suppose, deal with the happens. reality of the situation at the moment. If there are more problems, like the ones we saw last month, do the army need to be brought in? See, I mean, this was a, this was a, a failure from a resource planning perspective from Dublin Airport Authority. Yes, but do it's the army recently. need to be brought in? Well, I don't know. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't make that call because I'm not aware of what the actual needs are. But do you have any issue with the, the army being brought in well, if they are needed? Th that decision has been taken. It's a contingency, as we understand it. We don't have all of the details. But DAA could have seen this coming. What they did was they essentially, you know, got rid of some of the staff. They, they used the opportunities provided by the pandemic to actually, as they say, right-size their staff. In fact, what they did was get rid of some very, very essential staff and they had a rehiring staff, some of them who used to work there, on actually lower rates and poorer terms and conditions. So this has been a bad experience, a bad episode for DAA management. They haven't come out of this well. Um, I'm conscious too that uh, PD4, the uh, army union, or one of the army unions has come out um, today and said, look, we are not here to solve private companies' HR problems. They're not happy about being called in, are they, Emer? Well, they're not, and you can understand that. I mean, we've very trained, highly skilled um, members of the Defence Forces, many of whom work in, in Casement Airdrome, Baldonnell, in my own constituency, and I appreciate that. Um, and they stepped up to the plate when we needed them to do other tasks uh, during COVID-19, and we're all so grateful for that. And none of us want them to be working in Dublin Airport, that's for sure. This is absolutely precautionary. Like before politics, I came from the private sector. We always have what we're called BCPs, business continuity plans. This is what this is. This is a situation where if COVID means that people can't come to work in Dublin Airport Authority, what we need to make sure is that people can still catch their flights. This is a precautionary plan that we're putting in place um, in the event that that happens. Um, while Jed is, is right, people were let go during the pandemic. That happened in airports right across the globe. This isn't just a Dublin airport issue. This okay. has happened we, we, in the UK, we, it's happened in we, France, we, it's happened we, in okay. Italy. And to be honest, what we're doing here in Ireland is we're taking action to make sure that people aren't going to lose their family holidays. I mean, in the UK, they're not taking this action. Instead, they're asking airlines to cancel flights. What we want to do is make sure that people can get on their flights. That's what we want to do. Okay, and very briefly, uh, Sean, there are still lots of issues within the airport. You only have to look at social media to look at, you know, the rubbish, to look at some of the queues, to look at the baggage issues. They're huge. Uh, it's, been, it's been a total disaster of management for the last while. And like politicians quite often get into this thing of let's call in the army. It hasn't already been for the airport, you know, rhododendrons in Killarney National Park, let's call in the army. It's been all these different things and now it, it is actually getting done. But this isn't going to solve all those problems because it's not going to provide extra baggage handlers for the check-in desk for the airlines. A lot of the problems are actually now with the airlines themselves and the COVID problems that they have. So, uh, look, I, th I think it's a bit ridiculous and farcical. I would tend to agree with PD4 that if you're drive, uh, bringing in the army to solve a private company's problems, the private company hasn't done a very good job managing their business. Uh, I just want to move on just quickly uh, to the issue around uh, masks. So what exactly happened today? 
So the Cabinet has given permission for Stephen Donnelly, the Health Minister, to draft new legislation to bring back mask mandates, to bring back that legal power that the government did have to make us wear masks in certain settings, be that on public transport or wherever the government decides to do it. So it's not going to happen before the summer recess. It's not something that is in response to this particular wave that's happening now, but more one that's looking to the winter so that if there is, I'm sorry, I say if, when there is a surge this winter, as we're all predicting there will be, there is a, it was described as the winter tyres on the car to me by one government source today. You can break this and bring back in the, the mass mandate. So that will now start to be drafted over the next while, probably be quite similar to the ones that were passed last year and then probably brought in sometime in September. Uh, I'm just very conscious, uh, Emer, that, you know, anecdotally, more than ever, I've never heard so many people uh, with COVID again. Does the government have any idea of the number of people out there with COVID at the moment? Have they any way of keeping track of those numbers? Yeah, so at the moment, um, obviously some people are eligible for PCR tests and that's being monitored. Anybody, and this is actually a great opportunity the majority to majority people are going for PCR tests. You're right, the majority of people, people are, are getting antigens. And this is probably a great opportunity to say to people if you're at home with COVID and you have a positive antigen, do register with the HSC because that is also part of it. What we do know, Kira, is that we're in a much, much better place than we were a number of months ago when COVID numbers were, were very high. And that's yeah, but it's having huge implications in the, in, the, in the workplace, it isn't is. it? It is. You're and you see that at Dublin right. Airport. You're absolutely right. And that's why the government are, are making, making precautionary plans. So is that, because the one thing we know about COVID is it rips up plans and it's unpredictable. Uh, what we want to do is have the government in a good place to be able to reintroduce um, <clears throat> regulations around mask wearing to, to reduce those incident rates, uh, to reduce the amount of people out sick um, from the workforce if and when we require it. And we'll be guided by the public health advice on that. Jed? Yeah, it would be preferable if a mask mandate was not reintroduced. And I understand that this is a case of, you know, breaking case of an emergency. If we happen to have a, a, an outbreak that's particularly problematic in the winter, then that may be something that the Oireachtas is going to have to decide. Not, go, not government, but the Oireachtas, uh, both houses of the Oireachtas. But I'd say this, I mean, what I'd like to see is more clarity from government and the Minister for Health, especially in relation to the rollout of second boosters, for example. There seems to be a deafening silence now. Um, you know, we all know anecdotally, people in our own family and our own network who've had COVID over the last few weeks. And I think what would be really useful is actually the introduction of the next phase of uh, the booster uh, regime to make sure that people are, you know, equipped to, to you know, sort of if they do get it, they don't get sick. Uh, right. We've seen older people get it, but people, you know, under 65, even those who uh, have maybe sort of chronic conditions and so on and might be immunosuppressed, haven't had it at this point in time. So there needs to be more clarity around that. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. My panel is staying with me. And after the break, uh, new legislation that will compel schools to provide special education classes more quickly has just been approved by government. The government has approved a new bill that will allow the Minister of State for Special Education, Josefa Madigan, to compel schools to provide special classes for children with special educational needs more quickly. It will allow the Minister to issue directions to a school within six to eight weeks of receiving a report from the National Council for Special Education. Sean Defoe, Emer Higgins and Jed Nash are still here and we're also joined by the NCSE Chief, John Kearney. Uh, Sean, can you just give me a very brief background uh, to the situation. So there is this power already that the, the department can use to compel a school to, to provide um, special education places, but it takes quite a long time. It can take anywhere sort of between 12 and, and 18 months, according to the minister today, which obviously isn't great if you are needing places for this coming summer. So the government's approved the legislation today. It's going to be debated in the Dáil on Friday to reduce that time to six to eight weeks. It 
came into the political sphere really at the weekend when Minister Josefa Madigan publicly named four schools that she said weren't, in her view, cooperating with this to provide special places where she believes availability is there. Those schools have since come out and strongly denied that that's the case. Said they're working very closely with the department. Uh, although Minister Madigan did somewhat double down on her comments today and said she, she doesn't believe that these schools are cooperating and so need to be compelled to provide some because 106 places in uh, in Dublin that are needed for next year. All right. Uh, well, a little earlier, I spoke to mother of three, Rachel Martin. Uh, two of her children have autism. And I began by asking her for a reaction to today's announcement. Yeah, I suppose my primary concern is schools are already very under-resourced. Um, principals who in schools that are already open and classes that are already open are reporting that they don't have the resources, the SNAs, etc., to function and the NCSE won't um, sanction them. So I suppose my my first reaction was that Minister Madigan was shifting the blame when she named the four schools. Um, the blame, and I want to be very clear, lies squarely at the feet of the NCSE and the minister herself. This is not something that is new. This this is something that's gone on years. And with a bit of forward planning, this could have been resolved. This would have been foreseen. And you are, of course, the parent of two children uh, who have autism. And your little daughter, Ivy, is due to start school in September. Are you comfortable with the class that she's going into and that the resources are there to support Ivy? Unfortunately not. She got, um, the school's fantastic. My son goes there in an autism class, but Ivy has no chance of getting an autism class in that school. She has no chance of being educated with her siblings um, in her own community unless she takes a mainstream place. And I have no confidence that she would have the SNA support um, or the resource support there for her. So unfortunately, we are going to have to defer a year and I suppose fight this battle again next year. So Ivy, your daughter is not, as it sounds, able to start school in September because you don't feel you have the right place for her. That's correct. She'll have to stay in preschool for another year, yeah. And how does that make you feel as her mother? Um, I suppose it's quite upsetting because obviously my eldest daughter doesn't have additional needs and I see that she... You know, I applied for schools for her, she got placed and I suppose your thought there was, oh, she might not get her first choice of school. But there was never... a she will not get a school place. Um, so I suppose that's it's really upsetting in that sense that that equality is not there for our children. And, you know, when they speak about opening these centres for autism, it's just very much a case of segregate them over there. Any classroom will do, any four walls will do. And it really comes down to, you know, quality of, of education. I spoke to a principal yesterday who did an exceptional review for SNA access in May of 2021, and that was only approved on Friday. Rachel Martin speaking to us uh, there. I want to speak uh, to you first, John Carney, because there's a mother of two children uh, with autism. Um, this child, her daughter, has a place in September. So I'm sure, you know, under your books, that child has provision. The mother's saying it's absolutely not right for her child. Yeah. It's not suitable. And the child won't start school um, this September. She is putting the blame for this issue, not at the door of the school at all, but at your door. See, this uh, tremendous uh, delivery of special education delivery has been seen in this country for the last decade and has been matching with, with a demand with, with supply. And, and there's been a tremendous demand in, in the sense in the last decade, uh, we've seen the, the number of special classes increase from five, 500 to close to 2,500 special classes now as, as such. 
the, the supply is met by the, the cooperation and the collaboration of, of, of schools and by and large that has been delivered successfully. This year again we saw three, uh, 300 new special classes open but unfortunately there was pinch point reach. Last year it was Cork and Dublin again with our comprehensive overview in terms of delivery of special classes it was narrowed down to, to, to the remaining black spot which, which is Dublin and in, in terms of getting the right appropriate placements for the remaining 56 special class placements that are required, 50 special school placements. That's ultimately what we're trying to progress. Ultimately, the vision for the, from the NCAC perspective, from the government's perspective, uh, would be that each child, uh, very much like the previous speaker there, in terms of would be able to go to their own local school community. That's ultimately what we're trying to deliver here. And we're getting, you know, moving progressively closer to that. But there is more work to be done in terms of delivering in that objective. Uh, but John, I listened to some of those school principals that were named and shamed uh, by the minister. I'm listening to that mother there, and they're saying, you know, for your for your council, for the Department of Education, it's about the physical space. It's about putting a child into a space and taking a box, with no reflection if that's the right space for that child or if the supports are there to ensure that that child is getting uh, their educational provision? From an NCSE perspective and the department's perspective, the, the appropriate supports will always be given to, to special classes that are open in terms of the additional uh, teacher allocation that's been provided, in terms of the additional uh, SNA supports that are required, in terms of the comprehensive range of supports. But that's that, not what this mother was saying. But that's the, not what one of the principles I, I know of that's the what she's not saying, but like... And uh, one of the principles of the school shame said the same thing Every yesterday. special class that is automatically sanctioned. The, the resources follow uh, in, in, in terms of the additional teachers that go with that uh, special class, in terms of the additional SNA supports. It's automatically, it, it, it's an automatic provision that, that, that's granted as such, uh, and that has been delivered successfully with over 315 cl classes to, to date for this year, with the appropriate supports being put in at that particular level. There is ongoing support. It's a very... F uh, onerous challenge for for a school to take on the delivery of special education. It's one that so many schools have embraced progressively, and there is ongoing support. And we're continually listening to our school leaders in terms of the additional supports that are needed to deliver uh, in, in terms of comprehensive special education delivery. Uh, Jed, the minister said today, you know, this is a landmark day mm. for pupils with special needs. Is it? Um, certainly more could be done if it was the landmark day we would have actually seen the delivery of the um, National Autism Empowerment Strategy that's all approved the Labour Party proposed strategy back in April 2021 and because that strategy actually hasn't been delivered what we're doing tomorrow actually we're using our private members time uh, to debate uh, and hopefully government will adopt and won't oppose it uh, an autism bill developed by my colleague uh, Deputy Aon Arirdon and others to provide a legal framework for the provision of services in terms of health services, in terms of educational services, and in terms of access to work and so on, right through the life cycle for persons with autism in this country. We're especially letting uh, young people with autism down. I mean, we have situations where, you know, we're transporting uh, young children with additional needs from areas like Dunhamid in the north side of Dublin to my own hometown of Drogheda to get the kind of services that they need. 15,500 young people in the education system aren't being provided with service, educational services within their own catchment areas. So something is radically wrong. So instead of the Minister doubling down on some of the 
awful remarks that you made, ill-judged remarks that you made about four primary schools are actually in the system trying to do the best that they can, trying to work with the department and the NCSE to develop the kinds of services that they were asked to provide. You know, she doubled down on this today. Rather than clarifying her remarks, she should have just apologised, uh, put her hand she up did, and she said, I got it wrong. Didn't I got it wrong. She doubled down on it and I think that was most unfortunate. I think she needs to reflect on that. I, I don't think you can be asked to apologise for wanting to make sure that the 106 children that don't have a place in September, get a place. And that's what the minister is trying to achieve. That's exactly what she's trying to achieve. I mean, I'm a Dublin TD. I'm dealing with an awful lot of those families who are so stressed out because they don't know what's going to happen for their family in September, just like in, in Ivy's case. Um, last You're now week, asking those schools, though, to make those classes available in the next six to eight weeks. Most of those schools going on uh, their summer holidays well, today or tomorrow. Well, remember now, they're only talk, we're only talking about schools where the NCSE and the department have said that there is capacity for schools to do this, to achieve this. You're talking about engaging with them in a much more proactive way where you're saying to them in the next six to eight weeks, we need to get this resolved. And that's the reality for these 106 families. We need to get this resolved. Um, today was an important day because today was the first meeting of the special Oireachtas Committee on Autism. But I'm just and very I think conscious for those parents out there, uh, Emer, who want these places yeah. for their children, I'm sure. They want the right place for their child. They don't, I'm sure, want to send their child to a school where the school principal is saying, I don't have the resources in place in the school to provide the right environment and the right education for this child. And that's, that's hardly reassuring to these parents. No, but that, that's what's happening is they're putting in place the resources. The department and the NCSE are working together. Every time there's a new special, um, special unit sanctioned, that means two SNAs automatically and it means a special education teacher. The resources are there. It's about making sure they're allocated properly to make sure that these 106 children have a you place to go. You say the resources are there. Uh, John, well, every that. child who needs a place in school, every child with special needs, special educational needs, who needs a place in school this September, will they have one within their catchment area? Well, we're working towards that. I mean, ultimately, we're doing this in stages. And as I just alluded to previously, tremendous progress has been made in that regard. So that's no guarantee? No, it's no guarantee that at this moment in time, what we are trying to progress, first of all, is, is deliver a placement to every every student that has a, a special class placement. There will be anomalies that we prefer not to have, but ultimately over a period of time, what we're seeking to progress is deliver initially that every student will have their appropriate special class placement and then progress it to the next stage that they will be attending uh, the, the, that special class placement within the local school community. It's progressive implementation that we're working towards here. All right, OK, that's it from us. Uh, my thanks to my panel uh, for coming in to me this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also now find us on Instagram tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night. Do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.